October 30th, 2011, lecture discussion uh, intermission number 10, or what other highly trained professional pastor types would call what to do during the height of the fishing and hunting season during Alaska or in Alaska. And my great idea, as you know, was to take on the Jewish uh, betrothal wedding ceremony, the 12-step pattern, while people were uh, were doing the normal summer hiatus here thinking how long could that take, and now I'm looking at six months to a year. I'm only kidding about that. I've got to shut it down pretty soon. But it, it does, It's one of those never-ending subjects, and it's hard to find a spot to stop. So we find ourselves somewhat stuck now at step 10, and that's the two shouts of Michael the archangel, where Michael shouts two things. He shouts, shouts blessed uh, is he who comes, and behold, the bridegroom comes. And that, of course, most will say to you, and I will agree, that that is at the rapture of the church. And that sends us that very phrase, though, one of those phrases, uh, blessed is he who comes, sends us to Moses, who wrote that phrase at Psalm 118.26. And I made the case previously that that ends up sending us to Numbers 20 because I believe Numbers 20 uh, precipitates or causes Psalm 118.26. Okay, so I hope you got all of that um, so far. At Numbers 20, we're confronted uh, with five key questions. And last week, I asked you to deal with them. They're all essay. They're not multiple-choice questions. I wanted to make the multiple-choice, but I ended up, for each question, just looking at it, I ended up with 15 to 20 multiple-choice answers, which would make it obvious. Answer A would be one or two words. Answer B would be four paragraphs. Answer C, and no, everyone would know it was B. So it doesn't work. And you know that was your homework assignment from last week, and, the, and, and I assume you all did it, and so the you can begin to turn your homework assignment in now. And you you can turn your homework assignment in now that you did, that you wrote. And I'm going to read some emails. Uh, actually, if you could help me out here, you could rustle your bulletins or something. And, and, and uh, it, thank you. That's our futile attempt right there to convince someone on the Internet that we actually do homework here. We did once. We had a test once. I'd like to do it some more. We also need somebody to pretend uh, uh, that uh, you're collecting them. I need a teacher favorite. I want them to think there really are teacher favorites, but but there aren't. And nobody believes me anymore on the Internet. They're getting progressively more suspicious, and they're getting progressively more sarcastic. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, actually, I'm going to read a very kind of a sweet one first uh, and deal with that. It's from Kevin Akers. And I don't know, Kevin, where you're from, but uh, thank you for your email. Uh, it's, he said this, Wow, I am humbled greatly. Thank you for making Christ great. I cannot believe how little, how retarded we have become. I have always believed there was more in Scripture than the written obvious. And for the first time, I have seen the depth or beginning of the depth that was or is in what we have called God's Word. Keep on blessing the church of Christ with the gift the Lord has given you. I was blessed and want to search out to be wise in the Lord as you have demonstrated. I want to do the work. Do you have books that you can recommend that would help in this type of study? 
the author does not have to be living. That's good, because he won't be, as per the first death. Bless you, brother. And then he has this question, which I found, which is why I'm reading it. Can I buy a parking space? Uh, and yes, Kevin, you can, you can buy them. They, uh, they aren't really for sale, but because uh, we don't own any. But if we did, we would make sure you could have one. I've thought about that, as you know, many times. and I have all kinds of ideas for selling parking spaces, or at least the signs. Maybe we could sell the signs of the parking spaces. But to answer your question, Kevin, uh, one is living. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, any of his Israelology or footsteps of the Messiah, I think, are essential. You can find him at Aerial Ministries or look up Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, Dr. Fruchtenbaum. He is probably the only living author that I have that I uh, refer to regularly, and especially start in his appendices. I think you will find that to be the most helpful, even though his uh, Israelology has no peer. Uh, secondly, I would suggest to you M.R. DeHaan. Uh, not the, I, uh, this is uh, Dr. DeHaan, the pediatrician who died in the 60s, uh, who had a radio broadcast. His books are hard to find. Dave's uh, Supper Dave here has tried to find them with some success. Um, but if you can, I would certainly recommend his Portraits of Christ in Genesis to get you started. And then, of course, uh, Ada, Ruth, Ada Ruth Habershon. Uh, any of her works, Study of the Types is her most famous, uh, Hidden Pictures in the Old Testament and other. Those are, are remarkable works, especially when you study her life, which was profound. It will embarrass all of us uh, how early and how young she was and, and the depth of understanding that she had. Uh, besides writing 200 some odd songs in her spare time. Extraordinary uh, woman of Christ. Now, this is from Sharon from Texas, and we all know Sharon, and she is a, a wonderful supporter of ours, and uh, it's great to hear from her again. Here's what she says. What an awesome message. It sent me in all kinds of directions. Now, she's talking about last week. Uh, I am on so many rabbit trails, I'm getting dizzy. And that succinct list of the 12 steps of the Hebrew wedding ceremony Lori sent me is really helping me find my way back to the main path. One note, and this made me laugh, though, one note though. About 30 minutes in, I thought my short-term memory had finally lost its last brain cell. Over and over and over and over for about seven minutes, I heard the same baseball commentary. <laughs> about designated hitters. Did my MP3 file get corrupted or is the original like that? I thought I was in purgatory for a while, except that I don't believe in purgatory, but it almost convinced me that I should. <laughs> and then she puts this, sorry, I'm just not a sports person, my two cents worth only. And, and then extremely cryptic, and I need you to solve this for me. By the way, Sharon, Yes, I did rant on the designated hitter uh, versus the relief pitcher that pitches to one guy that bats on the left side of the plate, and they call him a player, and we have to watch him bat. I can't stand relief pitchers, even though I was one. Okay, I'll start ranting again. But anyway, Sharon, so Sharon, it wasn't, it, it isn't you. 
It is clearly me. And she, she says this at the end. Why MMV? And I called people. I called, I called, uh, Lindsay and Anna, cause Lindsay told me to call Anna. What does YMMV mean? I have to know. I thought of a view. Uh, you make me vomit is all I could come up with. And I didn't believe that Sharon really thought that, but that's all I got. Does anybody know? You all get on your little things and you move your thumbs and you do this. It's obviously some kind of computer thing. No one knows. Oh, your mileage may vary. That could be. Huh? Your method may vary. What's that? Okay, we, we have decided because Katrina being able to go immediately to some device that I couldn't operate comes up with your method may vary, which is far better than you make me vomit. So, so Sharon, if it is your method may vary, please let us know. Uh, and that was very cool. And thank you for that. What's that? <laughs> Maybe I can change it to that for the whole world. Okay, and finally, um, uh, this came through Kurt. Uh, it is uh, Jennifer from Arizona, um, who has been a very, again, another very faithful supporter of us. Subject, yes, you've ruined us. Mr. Pastor, and I appreciate being called Mr. Pastor. I really do. You don't have to stop at an hour. Oh, yes, Jennifer, I do. You, you should see the audience here. The class. I used to go 90 minutes. And, uh, and I don't think there are any survivors of that clan. Okay, Mr. Pastor, you don't have to stop at an hour. And she has a smiley face thing, I think, that's sideways. The last three messages have been so full, full, full. <sighs> F-U-L-L. I'll stop for a second. I'm watching. They had a flash mob in Anchorage. Yes, and the flash mob was protesting bowling. And I couldn't understand that. Why were they protesting bowling? And I, yeah, as Katrina knew, I didn't. I'm looking at Lori while it's going on. I'm going, why are they protesting bowling? What's wrong with bowling? Okay. But it was bullying. Yes, they were protesting school bullying. Okay. Okay, I got it now. Back when I was a teacher, uh, of course, the teachers were the bullies, which we found quite effective. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> that was my favorite part of teaching, was the bullying part. But no, now if I were teaching, and Louis will absolutely guarantee this, I would be arrested. I wouldn't even last 20 minutes. But back in those days, I was considered to be highly effective and, and, uh, a sought-after lecturer on how to keep control of your class. And by the way, that's true. I actually did teach a class at a teacher in-service on how to get control of your class. It was well-received. And hopefully all of, those, uh, all of those notes from that have been destroyed to protect me from the authorities. Okay, back to... Jennifer from Arizona. Mr. Pastor, you don't have to stop at an hour. The last three messages have been so full. A good full. I like being full. And I'm not overweight by much. Just big boned. See, see, you don't think that my jokes are getting through. You don't think they're funny. But they're getting through. I'm just trying to point that out. And I was a pitcher. 
and a designated hitter when I wasn't pitching in college. So easy on the pitcher-designated hitter comments. You thought that my pitcher-designated hitter stuff is not, not, no one's listening. They just soon get rid of it. But evidence, I have two in a row now. Uh, protecting the pitcher is good. We're important. Even when your contract isn't three million, more like free. I wasn't allowed to slide though, and I'm glad of that because I hated sliding. Two-thirds of us pitchers obey. The other one-third rebel. They get hurt and lose their contract. Besides, those sliding scars interfere with the, with the beauty of all the varicose veins now. <laughs> Rebellion isn't worth it. Now, yes, I was weird before Cliffside. <laughs> Excited to see your lineup for next Sunday. Uh, I'm trying to call you again soon, or maybe you'll be talking about the great parentheses in a sermon soon, so I won't need to. I have more questions. Sorry, fake sorry, is, is what she wrote. Yes, she is. So, uh, forgot one thing. I'm gathering protesters. No one should take Mr.'s cookies. Occupy Chronister Street. <laughs> Finally... Finally, sorry, real sorry, ignore my grammar. It's not mine and never was, or not and never was my thing. So there you go. I just wanted to share that with you so you could get to know these folks just like I have over the months. And it's really pretty cool. So again, it makes me very proud that they are sarcastic and bitter and cynical like all of us. Okay. At the end of last Sunday's lectures, Last Sunday's lecture, off tape, or pre-buffet, if you will, I asked everyone to consider the five questions of Numbers 20. (coughs) Excuse me. Wow. The five questions of Numbers 20. I wanted you to do your best to arrive at answers that best befits all of the evidence. I wanted you to think about conformity, consistency. That's the goal. I don't want you to have a view that just makes you, I don't know how to say it, you might like your view, but it doesn't fit any of the evidence. I want you to look at the text and say, okay, this is consistent with the text, and therefore the view has the potential to be defended at the least. I wanted you to accumulate as many pieces as you can and then reach a judgment that incorporates and brings coherence to the testimony. What am I telling you to do? To act like almost an attorney or a detective. That's very important, I believe, in understanding this. God has a legal... uh, theme to his scripture as well as a mathematical one. I wanted you to strive for the reconciliation of all the parts and avoid positions that are in contradiction. All right, here's a better way. Um, Avoid a position. I had a a teacher many, many years ago uh, in Hawaii, and Jane and John know who it is. He, He said, at least don't give me a view that I can so easily destroy. I want a fight. And so uh, I learned a lot from him, and he's absolutely right about that. Just don't throw out stuff that is indefensible from the text. So uh, strive for that. And now, the highlights must be considered here, as usual, and I'm trying to keep them repeating. I'm trying to maintain the highlights at the foremost over the last couple of weeks. And so let me do that again. 
Uh, let me just rattle through them so I don't run out of time today. The faithfulness of Moses. You, you have to have a position where it fits with the faithfulness of Moses. If you have Moses being unfaithful um, or egotistical, that's not how God describes him. So consider the faithfulness of Moses, the humility of Moses, Numbers 12, the desire of Moses to substitute himself. And who is he substituting himself for? He's substituting himself for the adulterous, rebellious, stiff-necked people of Israel. And what does he want? He says, blot me out. That's the kind of man Moses is. Blot me out. Save the rebellious, adulterous, stiff-necked people. Who does that? So whatever your position on what Moses and Aaron are doing at Numbers 20, you have got to be consistent with the blotting out of the humility and the faithfulness of Moses. And the unique position of Moses, he sees God face to face. I know it is a, uh, it's an idiom. But it means he had an unbelievably close relationship, more so than any other prophet. So if your position is that Moses is stupid, indefensible, contradicts the test, the text, not only does he see God face to face, but he is always doing something with regard. He's falling on his face when he is in the presence of God. He is tremendously reverent. And he has, how much wisdom does he have? He's 80 days on the mountain. He's got two forties, doesn't he? Two ascents, two descents. His intellect, he wrote Genesis for goodness sakes. He wrote the Pentateuch. Yes, ma'am. That's right. He had the education, uh, if you will, of the, of the premier system in the world at the time. He was in the royalty of of Egypt. So have no position that makes him be uh, what's the capricious or um, or spontaneous. That's not who he is. He's not arrogant. None of that's in the Bible. Look at the three signs of Moses. Exodus 4. Those three signs help you. Uh, look again at the death of Moses, Deuteronomy 34. The for your sakes of Deuteronomy 137, 323 through 28, and 421 through 24. He does things for the sake of Israel. That's what he's doing. And then, of course, keep your, uh, your, uh, your mind on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's Matthew 17. When you have a position about Moses at Numbers 20, you have to pay attention to the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. Most people see Moses and Elijah there as who? What's the number one view of why Moses and Elijah are at the Mount of Transfiguration? Yeah, they believe they're the two witnesses of Revelation 11. So you're going to end up in Revelation 11. Now, I should point out something to you. <coughs> the three views really fast. Rabbit trail. The, there's a bunch of views on the two witnesses. The first, of course, the one that has the most strength behind it, I believe, because of the Passover pattern, is that it is Moses and Elijah. The second one that you see all the time is, no, it is Enoch and Elijah. Both of them, of course, uh, were taken up without death. Okay? The third one is, is this one. 
that nobody really talks about. But it has a lot of strength to it as well. All of them um, have strength. All of them can be defended. For the Internet audience, I wrote Moses and Aaron are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. What would be the first argument of that? Both of them died in an unusual circumstance. And they both are already two witnesses, aren't they? They are the two witnesses that escort the wife during the marriage ceremony at Mount Sinai. So they're already got the title. Are they the two? And by the way, what is the purpose of the two witnesses in Revelation? Is it for the church? No, church is gone. Is it to witness to who? Yeah, if it's to if it's to witness to Israel, then this becomes a little problematic. I'm circling Enoch for those on the internet. Anyway, just know that. Just be aware of it. And anytime you're talking about um, um, Moses and his body, you have to go to Jude 9 and deal with the uh, Michael and Satan contending for the body of Moses. And that's an important word. Whatever position you find yourself, let me repeat this, at Numbers 20, with respect to Moses and Aaron, what I just rattled off is, is, is the short list. That's the very short list of passages that you're going to have to evaluate that you must reconcile with your position on Numbers 20. And let me repeat, it's the short list. I haven't even touched Aaron and the golden calf. That's very difficult to deal with. Whatever position you have with Aaron at Numbers 20, you have to have a position that fits it with the golden calf. Okay, (coughs) excuse me, before I repeat the five questions... It becomes very important to reestablish the beginning and the end of the ministry of Moses. And when I say the ministry of Moses, I want to know what happened when he started. And I want to know what happened when he ended. What do I mean by what happened? I want to know what God and he talked about when he began his ministry. And I want to know what they talked about when his ministry was over. Why am I looking at the beginning of his ministry when I'm dealing with Numbers 20? Because Numbers 20 starts the ending phase, doesn't it? It's very important to compare what God and Moses talked about at the beginning and what God and Moses talked about at the end. So we'll start there this evening. So however you've answered, and I hope you all at least wrestled with it and said and dealt with the five questions. Well, you've got to start here at four of Exodus 10 through 17. So let's go there. Exodus 4, 10 through 17. Then Moses said to the Lord, what are they talking about, by the way? Give you context. They're talking about the beginning of Moses' ministry. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. What's Moses doing? Yeah, how's he doing? He's got a job interview. How's he doing in it? He's trying to tank it, isn't he? I don't want the job. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? 
Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. But, Moses said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. By the way, that's why you buy Kindles. Whatever you, I would never buy one. I couldn't imagine reading a book on a screen. But that's where it comes from, just so you know. So the anger of Moses was, I'm sorry, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? Boy, that should just come off the page, smack you right in the face. You should have a bloody nose now. I know that, well, that should come off the page and smack you and you should have a bloody lip now. Who just said, I know? Omniscient God. Is not Aaron your Levite, the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Duh. Your omniscient God. Never mind. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. In other words, Moses, you're going to put the words that I give you into the mouth of Aaron. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you. And you shall be to him as God. That's the deal. That's how we're going to run it. And you shall take this rod in your hand with you, with which you shall do the three signs, or the signs, okay? Now, I'm omitting Exodus 3 because of the constraints of time, but for today, notice some key elements. After, after God gives Moses the three great signs of Christ, what are they? We'll repeat them. The rod that becomes a snake, okay? The leprous hand that's restored, puts it in, it's white, Brings it back, it's healed, right? The leprous hand that's restored, the rod that becomes a snake, and the water that becomes blood on dry land. The three great signs of Moses. After he gives him those three great signs, and by the way, all of those testify the redemptive work of Christ. If you, if you don't understand what the rod means, gather all the rods in Scripture. Gather all the leprosies. Gather all the water into blood. Where's the first place you go in the New Testament? If I say to you, water in the, into blood, what do you say back to me, New Testament wise? Communion service. First wedding. Water into wine. Water into blood, if you will. And, and once you solve those three signs, you're on your way. Just for fun here, make sure you put Miriam and Naaman and Gehazi uh, together for your leprosy. You got to get those three together, and then you got to go to Leviticus 14 for the two birds. And whenever I say two birds to you, what do you got to do now? You got to go to Genesis 15. And where are you? You're now in a philosophical discussion of substance dualism, of Israel in the church, of the death and the resurrection of Christ, of course. Um, uh, the angelic host in the humanity. Did I say substance dualism? Good. 
Now, once you got that, you can go to uh, Luke 4.27. That's just for fun. The Internet people will do it. Anyway, I'm getting off track. Just notice that after these three incredible signs that God gives him, what's Moses try to do? Tries to quit. And remember that Moses wrote this. Moses wrote the first five books of Pentateuch. Pentateuch. How is Moses coming out here? How is he representing himself? How did Moses depict himself? Did he make himself look good? No. What kind of person does that? An arrogant person do that? Yeah, he's an incredibly humble man. So whatever position you have on him in Numbers 20, it better be an incredibly humble man who does not want the job. By the way, see Jonah on that. And why did Moses use this excuse? Who is he talking to? Talking to God. I can't speak good. Really? That's your excuse? You've got a rod. You've got a leprous hand. You've got water that turns into blood on dry land. And you're worried about how good of a public speaker you are? You've got to be kidding me. See, there's a deeper meaning there, isn't there? That doesn't seem to make sense, and that's really wonderful. Because that means there's something really special hidden there. Moses does not want the role of speaking to the people of Israel. Okay. So Moses will speak to Aaron, and he'll put words in Aaron's mouth. And Aaron will speak, but Moses will be to Aaron as God. That's, wow, I hope that stuns you. Moses will be the hidden one in the background. And what's the element here? Speaking is clearly a central element here. Why? Why do we care about speaking? And if I say speaking's a problem, where do I go in the Old Testament with respect to Moses? Speaking's a problem. Obviously, I go to Numbers 20, where speaking turns out to be a problem. I submit that Numbers 20 contains very many of the same elements of, of Numbers, or sorry, Exodus 4. I'd expect that. Why would I expect that? Beginning and end. The reluctance of Moses to do this job, Moses' desire to step aside, he says, choose, send somebody else, please. And Moses says to, I'm sorry, God says to Moses, a direct command, now therefore go. And Moses says in response to that, send whomever, whomever else. Now, this is extraordinarily mysterious. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And and again, that means there's something really special buried here. And our first great clue that something is buried here is verse 14. So, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And then he asked this question. Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? This is omniscient God. Doesn't he know that? Of course he knows that. So why is he asking it? He's outside of time. I know that he can speak well. As I said, that's that's a duh. God is omniscient. See rule one. 
Don't take a shallow view of this exchange between God and Moses. There is a special truth being taught here at Exodus 4, 10 through 17, and it intersects with Numbers 20. In both places, Moses refers to God being angry at him for the sake of Israel. And, and see Deuteronomy 137, 326, 421. Now, here's another rule for reading the Bible. When God is described as angry, immediately stop in order to protect yourself. Because what you're likely to do, what most people do, when they read a Bible verse, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, instead of stopping and taking a baseball bat and hitting themselves in the head, they do something consistently wrong. Don't read another word. Do not proceed one more step. And notice, Sharon, I got baseball back into the... Do not proceed one more step until you have purged out all the anthropomorphisms from your definition of the word anger. Do not for a second think that God's anger is the same in any way as your anger or my anger or anybody else's anger. If you read that word anger and you put your anger in its place, you have erred so greatly that it's almost impossible to get you back on the road. So stop. Purge out the humanness that you put in there. God's anger is different. Our human anger is not, is not applicable to God. I, and listen, I know the number one thing that happens with people, especially um, kids, is they assume that God is like somebody in their life. Who do they assume that God is like? They've assumed that God is like their father. And so if their father throws fits and kicks things and, you know, does whatever he does because he's a sinful human being, then the kids believe that God is like that. And some of them will carry it into adulthood. And it is a horrible mess. And that tells fathers, listen, here's an applicational sermon. You've got to be really careful. Because that kid has a tendency to transfer God onto you and you onto God. Both of those are a horrible mistake. Our human sinful anger is not applicable to God. His anger is divine. It's righteous. It's good. It's holy. It's merciful. It's just. It's wise. It's perfect. God's anger only has God's attributes to it. doesn't have your attributes. None of our attributes. So ask the obvious question. What makes God angry? First, you've got to define what God's anger really is. And again, stop, strip out all your humanness from it. What makes Him angry when He's angry? What makes Him angry? Well, see Matthew 23, 11 through 39. That's the best place I can give you in the New Testament. Because that's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And He is condemning the Pharisees for what they do. What do they do? They travel the earth and they make proselytes out of one person. And they make him a greater son of hell than themselves. And that makes God angry. They destroy people. Makes him angry. 
And you'll notice that Matthew 23.11, by the way, if you go there, could easily refer to Moses. And Matthew 23.39 is, Blessed is he who comes. Psalm 118.26. Okay, enough of that. All that I've told you so far today is to get you properly prepared to deal with the five questions of Numbers 20. So it's probably a good idea now to restate, restate them. And I'll kind of put them on the board so you can... For those of you who were not here last week, can kind of go along. Well, um, uh, I dropped the cap to the uh, holy dry erase marker on the floor. Now I just won't get it anymore. Will not bend down to get it. It's too hard. Okay, numbers twenty. Question number one: If Moses was to speak to the rock. Why did God command that the rod be part of the process? Because he says to Moses, take the rod. So in other words, what's the purpose of the rod at this lesson for Israel? Okay? Why take the rod? That's question number one. Question number two from last week. All of this about Numbers 20. So if you haven't gone through this... uh, You can read Numbers 20. Just quickly on the rod. Last week I made the point that the rod is a symbol of who? Yes, symbol of Christ. One of the most profound symbols of Christ in all of Scripture. The rock is a symbol of Christ. Okay, The living water that flows out of the rock is a symbol of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. Aaron is a type of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ in his prophet ministry stage. Aaron is a type of Christ... In the high priest stage of Christ. So when I boil all that down, what do I got? I got Christ being taken by Christ and Christ to Christ from which the life of Christ will flow. That's what I got. So let's go to Numbers 20. Just a little pound that in. Let me pound that in a little bit. A couple of you thought that was funny and I appreciate that. Could you please move to the next, or one row forward next week? 28 and 9. Then, I'll start at 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod. That's important. Take the rod. You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock. Well, what do I need the rod for? What's the rod do? It strikes things. We'll get into that in a minute. It also buds. And it turns into a snake. And swallows other snakes. And it has a snake on it. And you may make the case that it carries the Ark of the Covenant. You've got lots of rods. Go gather all your rods. But why take the rod if I'm going to speak to the rock? And it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Notice he likes animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as He commanded him. So God uh, God <coughs> is very specific that the rod's got to go, and that's why the first question, what is the purpose? Now, I want you to consider something else. Hopefully you realize this. Who spoke to Israel during all of this? Who said, uh, here now you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Who said that? Moses said that. So what's the obvious question? 
Why did he take Aaron? What's Aaron for? What is the purpose of the rod? What is the purpose of Aaron? And also notice this incredible pattern. Take the rod. Verse 8, take the rod. And then I get a lot of instructions. You and your brother gather the congregation. Speak to the rock before their eyes. And it will yield water. So I got, take the rod. Then I got those instructions. And then I got Moses took the rod. But in the instructions, there's nothing about what? The purpose of the rod. Take the rod. Be like me saying, you know, take the pickup truck. And then give you a bunch of instructions that have nothing to do with the pickup truck. Why am I taking the pickup truck? That's the question of the rod. Why do I take the rod? But notice Moses took the rod. Moses heard those instructions and knew what the rod was for. How come he, how do you figure it out? He's really smart. Yes. Oh yes, that's why, that's Exodus 3. That rod is something that God gave Moses in a way. Moses had a rod, but God made it a special thing. It could do really cool stuff, that rod. It's kind of like uh, your lightsaber, if you will. How's that for contemporary? Is that only 30 years old? It's the best I got. <laughs> it is the best I got. Question number two. Why did Moses smote or kill, if you will, some will say struck, but it's very important that you know it's kill. Why did he smote twice the rock? Okay, twice. What's up with that? Why didn't he hit it three times, five times, seven times, ten times, one more time? Why twice? There's got to be a reason. He is not what? Arbitrary. Yeah, not stupid. He had a reason for that. What's his reason? Question number three. Why was Moses supposed, what was Moses supposed to say to the rock? Speak to the rock, right? What do you say? What are you supposed to say to the rock? Can I figure out the exact words that Moses was supposed to say to the rock? Yeah, I can. Did you do it? It's actually not that hard, I don't think. You get about seven or eight choices. Question number four. Numbers 20 and 12. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and He said this, Because you did not believe Me to hallow Me. Okay? Because you did not believe Me to hallow Me, which means to honor Me or to present Me as holy to the nation of Israel. So, because you did not believe Me. So, obvious question I asked last week. What is it that they didn't believe exactly? They didn't believe something. Moses didn't believe something. Moses and Aaron didn't believe something. What is it they didn't believe about God? And by the way, as Mike pointed out so eloquently in his uh, elder offertory uh, statement, you run, in, you run into people all over the place that don't believe something about God. And he's absolutely right when he said, he is, so many people do not believe that God is omnipotent. They believe, ah! It's the sound of me getting the cap to the dry erase marker. Uh, they do not believe God is omnipotent. They think that He can't stop things. He can't end sin. 
He can't defeat sin. He can't defeat free will ultimately. is what When you say God is not omnipotent, you are really saying that he, can't, he does not have a solution for sin. Pardon me? That's right. They anthropomorphize God and they, they make Him just like them, human. They, can't, they cannot account for sin and death and suffering and despair and sadness. They cannot figure out why that's here. When frankly, that's pretty easy and very sad that seemingly intelligent Christians who read their Bible can't get past that. Too bad. Takes me 30 seconds to get through that. Okay? But what is it that Moses, so in other words, people don't believe things about God. What is it that Moses doesn't believe? Because God said, because you did not believe me. How complex do you think it is? If you have a simple answer for number four, be scared of your answer. Number five, Numbers 20, 23 through 24, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people because you rebelled. And these two go together, uh, question four and question five tied together. They must fit together. Whatever they didn't believe caused the rebellion. Does that make sense? What exactly did Moses and Aaron rebel against that has to fit with whatever your answer for number four is? <clears throat> In conjunction with because you did not believe and because you rebelled, see, it's all there together. Because you did not believe and because you rebelled, you've got to add now Deuteronomy commentary on Numbers 20, which is Deuteronomy 137. The Lord was angry with me for your sakes. That's what Moses says. The Lord was angry with me for the sake of Israel. Deuteronomy 3.23-28. through 28, More commentary. More help for you. It says Moses is pleading with God. Telling him, let me go into the promised land. Why would Moses plead to God? And how does God respond, by the way, to that? God says to him, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Is God upset at him? Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Did you put your humanity into that statement? Has God lost his patience with Moses? Can God lose his patience? No, it's impossible. Can God be bitter, bored, tired of Moses? No. So what does he mean when he says enough of that? Speak no more to me of this matter. Deeply mysterious is Deuteronomy 3.26. Do not, do not anthropomorphize it. Do not make that all too common mistake. Go instead to Matthew 16.22-23, which is the rebuke of Peter and John 20:15 through 23 which is Peter as a type of Israel what's called the Simeon prophecy or the Simeon typology it's the same kind of thing once you begin to have uh, an understanding of how complex scripture is you stop making silly mistakes okay some things are obvious it is obvious for example that these two rocks giving water events are representative of the two comings of Christ i hope that's obvious to you i have rock 1 and i have rock 2 
40 years apart, right? I have the first coming of Christ and I have the second coming, or the first advent and the second advent. The death of the rock is the first coming in Exodus 17. So the first coming of Christ has the death of Christ and salvation flowing from the death of Christ, right? The speaking to the rock is the second coming, Numbers 20. They're 40 years apart, as I said. So far, so good. It's also obvious that the death of Moses and the death of Aaron are directly linked to Numbers 20, or the second rock. They die because of what happened at Numbers 20. The end of Moses' ministry and the end of Aaron's ministry happens because of what happens in Numbers 20. It's also obvious that the rod goes around striking things. The rod strikes the Red Sea. The rod is cast to the ground, right? The rod strikes the rock. So there must be a relationship between the striking, the killing of the rock, and the striking and the killing of the Red Sea. And on that note, we've got to do Exodus 17. Now, here's where I always ask when I'm doing this lecture, and I've done it before. How you doing on your answers so far? Exodus 17 is where we're at now. Because that's where we have the first one. And Exodus 17 is this place where I learned that contending, because Israel contends with God, I learned that contending is equal to testing. So testing God and contending with God are the same thing. That is an aha. I have a fly now on my paper. Okay. I think he's blown into the Bible. No, he's gone. That's a key ingredient, by the way. That's an aha. Testing. Israel contends and tests at Exodus 17. By the way, they contend at Numbers 22. What exactly was Israel testing of God? How were they testing God? Where else is God tested? Where is the number one place in all of the Bible that God is tested? Where is it? Matthew 4. Absolutely correct. Number one place where Christ proves that He has a solution for free will sin to Satan. Okay? That's Matthew 4. It's also Numbers 20. And so, X is in Exodus 17. So is Exodus 17, Numbers 20, the same as Matthew 4? And if I, if it's Matthew 4, is it Genesis 15? And if it's Genesis 15, is it Genesis 3, 14 through 21? Remember there, key phrase, cursed is the ground for your sake. Okay, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of, Is- of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and cap- camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. This is the first no water. Therefore, the people contended with Moses, which is the same as testing God. What were they testing? Contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. Think about that for a second. They're out of water. Give us water that we may drink. Think about that statement. 
I'm going to tell you that that's the same as saying, give us water that we may drink, ultimately is the same as give us salvation that we may live. Or die for us that we may live. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you test the Lord? That's where contend and test is the same. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt, up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? By the way, what is one of the seven sayings of Christ on the throne? Thirst. What else does he say? Come to me, you will never thirst again. What's he talking about? And notice also the same, it's the same thing. Isn't 17 and Numbers 20 the same? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me to death. I'm surrounded by them. And they're about to kill me. Same as where? Same as Numbers 20. So whatever your view in Numbers 20, you have to know that Moses and Aaron were surrounded as they were in 17 to be killed. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. So striking the river or the Red Sea is the same as striking the rock. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall smote, kill the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of the place Massa or Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying this, Is the Lord among us or not? There's your solution to Numbers 20. Now you're done. So you've got to understand that. Is the Lord among us or not? What happened at 17 Exodus happened at Numbers 20. A correct definition of among us or not, that's going to solve it for you. That will launch you to the, to the sound answers of all five questions. I submit that Exodus 17 is very closely repeated at Numbers 20, almost duplicated. And I submit that Moses and Aaron knew it. They knew this was round two, if you will. There are differences. The differences are profound and they're powerful. When you say what they said, is the Lord among us or not? When you say, give us water. When you say, why did you bring us to this evil place to kill us? If you say, why did you bring us to this evil place to kill us? What have you said about God? What is it? Yeah, you've said he's evil. So they have said, is he among us or not? And God is evil. That solves all five questions. That solves why he took the rod, why he hit it twice, What he was supposed to say to the rock. What he didn't believe and what he rebelled against. All you need is a definition, correct definition. Is God among us or not? Next week, I will finish it for you. But you have enough now to do it on your own.
You don't need me. It's almost completely laid out for you. Let's rise and be dismissed.